All right. Galatians chapter 1. If you got your Bible, go there. If you don't, that's like that's like going fishing without a fishing pole. Like you guys, when you guys come, at least that thing's got to be on your phone, right? We we got some in the back too. There's some stacked over there. If you guys need one, you can borrow one of ours. And if you don't have one, period, then just keep it. Just take it with you. Uh, we're gonna be in chapter one of Galatians. Clifton, we're glad you're here too, man. Thanks for praying for the food. It's gonna be extra good today, now. Um, we can never pray enough, and uh, I'm going to pray again just because like, I'm kind of zombified right now, so didn't sleep last night. It was one of those nights uh, where, where sleep just didn't work, just didn't happen, so bear with me for a second. Lord God, we, we, we do thank you that, uh, that this is your church um, and that you're the hero of everything that we talk about and do. Um, and I and I pray, Lord, that uh, that I wouldn't ruin or distract in any way um, what you want to say to people today, because I'm tired. And um, and so I pray that you would be made big in my weakness, um, that you would fill up what I lack, which is much, and that we would uh, we would know that it's you that said it when we hear what we need to hear. And uh, I pray for hearts too, God, as our minds um, are always easily distracted and taken to other things that happened yesterday or that might happen tomorrow or that might happen in a couple hours. God, I pray that uh, people's hearts and minds would be fully present right now because you're worth it. And we ask it in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we started the book of Galatians, which uh, which me and uh, Chad are, are tag teaming on. Uh, Terry and Brent are doing acts. Uh, last week was Chad, right? In Galatians here. It's just all like running together now. So uh, so we've had we've had two sermons now in Galatians. Uh, the first week I took one through nine uh, verses one through nine. Chad took ten uh, last week. Um, and just by a, a way of quick uh, re- recap, we talked about in the first sermon who wrote it, who he was writing to, and why uh, he was writing uh, this letter. And uh, we know uh, we went we went out on a limb and, and assumed that this is the Apostle Paul because that's what it says. Those are the opening words of the book. The Apostle Paul wrote this. That's good enough for us. He's writing to the Galatians. There were some churches that he went to on his first missionary journey in Galatia um, where he established uh, gospel works all over the place. And we're told in Acts that this other group of people followed him called the Judaizers. They were, they were always not far behind and they would undo and preach their form of the gospel, um, after him. And that's really the basis of this book. That's why he's writing it is because the gospel that he brought them, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel, like Chad said last week, that he got from God, not from man, um, is being challenged. And it's not okay. It's like a serious deal that someone's coming in and saying, no, 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 no. That's not the real gospel. This is the real gospel. And the gospel that Paul brought, which we're going to find as we go through this book, is a gospel of justification by faith. You know what that means? It means Jesus Christ plus nothing. 
saves us. And these other guys are coming in, and they're bringing a gospel that says Jesus plus these things are what save you. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And I think we saw that in the language that Paul uses. He's saying anybody who brings a gospel contrary to the one that I got you is accursed. Put them outside. Don't even mess around with them. Don't even play around with them. That's how serious a false gospel is. And that's really the basis of, uh, of what this letter is all about. Okay. Um, in chapter 1, we talked briefly about Paul's apostolic authority and uh, how uh, it came about from God and not man, his apostleship. Uh, today, we're going to hear him elaborate um, on that by telling his story. This is really what our text uh, is today, is Paul giving his testimony of um, how he was made an apostle and he received a gospel from God and not man. And so we're going to pick up in, in verse 11, and we're going to go ahead and, um, and go to the end of the chapter. And again, we're not going to do like major surgery on this. Like we'll kind of talk a little bit about and poke a little bit at some of the things that, that need to be poked at. Uh, we're not going to do a, a full exposition. This is not a Bible study. Okay, this is a proclamation of the person and work of God and Jesus Christ. Um, but we uh, hopefully will will pull some stuff out of here that um, this was a hard text, man. I was looking at this text all week and it's a this. This is what you call a narrative. It's a uh, it's not even a prescriptive narrative for us necessarily. It's a descriptive narrative. In other words, it's this dude's story. And so it's always hard for a preacher to take a text that's someone's story and come and appropriate it to you guys. But that's the beauty of the Word of God, is that you can he, he, he will always speak to you and reveal to you things that cross lines. There's stuff in here that's not just truths for Paul. There's stuff in here that are truths for you and I. And we desperately need to hear them and be reminded of them. And so hopefully we'll, we'll pull a few of those out. So let's go ahead and read and we'll... We'll kind of, um, we'll, we'll look at a, 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 we'll stop to look at a tree here and there, but we're not going to do anything crazy with this. So, uh, verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a wild thing to say, and we actually talked about this a few weeks ago a little bit. How did the other apostles get their apostleship? They were handpicked by Jesus when he walked on earth as a man. How did Paul get his apostleship? He was handpicked by Jesus after Jesus left the earth through a revelation. That's a weird thing. But Jesus, he, he had as much of an encounter with the man, the person, Jesus Christ, as the other guys did. And we're going to see that a little bit here. That word revelation uh, is um, apocalypsis. So it, what does that sound like? Apocalypse, right? Um, it's that same word, the last book in our Bible, the book of Revelation. Not Revelations. Don't ever call it Revelations with an S on the end, okay? Don't just, it's just one of those things you should never do. It's just revelation. It's one of my pet peeves. Revela it's the revelation of Jesus. It's that same word. That book is titled the, uh, with the same Greek word. It's apocalypse. Okay. And um, it says in 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently 
and tried to destroy it. It is interesting that Paul brings up this immediately, that he was um, a Judaizer. Because the very guys that are coming and trying to pull this church away with a different gospel are Judaizers. And so he wants his readers to know right off the bat that he's extremely familiar with these people and their gospel and what they're about because he was one. His life was committed. He can identify. He qualifies as a guy who can speak against the Judaizers, who can speak on this subject because he was one. And what's really cool um, to notice, this is just, if you stand back, this is the obvious thing, is that Paul was saved not in Judaism and not by Judaism, but from Judaism. That's the obvious thing that we're going to see here. He's no longer that, but he was one. Right? So he, he knows how to speak to this. He's qualified to speak to this. Um, and so he, he says there, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the, the, the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, he wasn't just a Judaizer. He was like a chief Judaizer. Like he was an all-star. He was not junior varsity. He was varsity. Like this dude was as committed and as diligent to this religion as anybody. That's important too. 15. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. There is um, a lot of speculation that goes on concerning what exactly Paul was doing for those three years following his conversion. When you go to Acts chapter 9 where we find Paul's conversion and you read on trying to have that gap filled in, it ain't there. It's a gap. It's somewhere hanging between two verses in Acts. This is the only place in the Bible where it mentions that, this time period where he goes away. It's interesting to think about what he might have been doing and who he might have been with, but it's not super profitable for us to spend a bunch of time on it because the Bible doesn't say. So we're not going to spend a bunch of time on it. But there is something that we can assume from it, regardless of how exactly it looked or how it went down, is that Paul was having his mind and his heart 
renewed and transformed by the real gospel. We know that was happening somehow, some way. All right. In some sense, he was in school with the Lord, unlearning things that needed to be unlearned and relearning things he needed to learn. This is reasonable for us to think. This is reasonable for us to assume, considering that Paul is setting out to stress here that it is not his gospel and apostleship that came from man, but from God. This, I believe, is why he goes out of his way to let us know that he stayed away from the other apostles after his conversion. Because this is a weird thing, guys. Usually when there's a conversion that takes place and someone meets the Lord, there's a, an integration that must immediately take place, that should immediately take place. There's an immersion in the body of Christ that should happen. Right? This is, this is the key. Anytime I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and they're a new believer or they meet the Lord, there's two things I tell them right away. Get a Bible and then read it, open it, and get into a body right away. You need to be surrounded by believers. You need to be surrounded by people that are going to tell you the truth and minister the truth to you. These are two important things that should immediately follow someone being born again. So this is this is kind of a, a weird thing. It is imperative when someone meets Jesus that they run to other believers, not away from them. Unless you're someone who's about to become an apostle, I guess. With a big A. See, the original apostles, big A, had a couple unique qualifications. Number one, they were picked by Jesus. Number two, they were taught by Jesus. They were discipled through Christ himself. And Paul is stressing that he did not initially go before the other men to gain their approval or his approval as an apostle or to be influenced in the gospel that he'd been given. He's making sure that the Galatians know here, that the readers know that it is God alone that gave Paul what it is that he had. Because I know it looks weird that he actually went the other way from Jerusalem instead of going to Jerusalem to meet those guys. This is why. He's making sure we understand what I got I didn't get from another man. On that note... There's something that's a little bit interesting here. The original disciples, the original apostles, were trained by Jesus, mostly in the wilderness, you could say, for a period of about three years. It's weird that Paul meets Jesus and goes away into the wilderness, so to speak, Arabia, for about three years before he goes up to Jerusalem. Odd. Or not so odd. We're going to see in chapter 2 that after those three years, when he went to Jerusalem to visit Peter and James, he then goes back out for 14 years. And we don't know a lot about that one either. But I do believe when he goes back out for 14 years, he is preaching the gospel. He is doing ministry because it tells us at the end of our text here, where is it? Verse um, 23, it says, they only were hearing it said, this is the people, the church in Jerusalem, 
that he used to persecute us. Now he's preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. These guys are saying, we didn't meet him in person when he came, but we're hearing about what this dude's out doing. Like he's out being a world changer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he is ministering. Okay. Now that a couple of the technicalities are out of the way, let's see what's for us here. All right. First one's going to sound really weird, and I kind of even thought about um, if I should even maybe focus on this, but I, I think it deserves something because of this text. Number one, sometimes it's okay to defend yourself. That sounds really wrong, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very spiritual. Sometimes it's okay for us to defend ourselves. And that doesn't mean in a prideful way. It doesn't mean um, in a jerky way. It doesn't mean that we should be defensive. That's something completely different. It doesn't mean that we should be prideful jerks. Non-believers and the world will disrespect and they will be aggressive and they will insult us and they will insult our gospel, but we should never do it back because that contradicts the heart and the character of the gospel. The church of God is not here to win arguments, guys. We're here to win souls and hearts that desperately need Christ. It's hard to try to do both at the same time. We are here to win hearts and souls. And that is the spirit and the intention that I believe Paul is showing us here in giving a defense of himself. By the way, the word defense, there's another word for that. starts with an A. We call it apologetics. That's actually the word for it. Apologetics doesn't mean, by the way, that we're apologizing for anything. It means that we're defending something. Okay? We get it from 1 Peter 3.15 where he says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Does anyone know the rest of that verse? But do it in all gentleness and respect. See, Peter tells us there what to do, which is to defend the hope that's within us, but he also tells us how to do it. There's a proper way to do it, and there's an improper way to do it, right? And I'm sure that you guys have been on both sides of that before. You've seen it both ways. This is part of the reason why I cannot and will not partake in political conversations with other Christians or go to many of the political feeds that come my way on any given day because I cannot stand, to be honest, with how Christians misrepresent God to the non-believer with their pride and their arrogance and their insults and their sarcasm as if we're dealing with people that just have a moral issue. Because that's not what my Bible tells me. My Bible doesn't tell me that we're dealing with a, a matter of IQ when it comes to believers and non-believers and moral issues. We're dealing with a spiritual issue. And if God does not wake us up, if He does not put jumper cables on the dead battery of our heart, we wouldn't be awake either. We would have no idea what the will of God is, and if we did, we wouldn't want it. It's not a matter of smarts or IQ. It's a matter of being regenerated by the living God so that we will see and want what He wants. 
And so with that, with knowing that, there's humility that needs to come with our interactions, God, when we're talking about hot-button topics and issues. Humility. Love. It really doesn't matter how right we are about something if it's not done right. Because if it ain't done in love, we're not right. I get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. I'm a drummer. I grew up all my life. My parents, my family members said that I came out of my mother drumming, like pounding on her and beating her up. At four years old, my grandma got me a drum set. I've had a drum set in my room ever since I can remember my earliest memories, even prior to my earliest memories. Every time growing up, when my parents would have company over and they had kids, guess where they would go? They would go to my room. They would sit on that drum set. They would grab a stick and they would pound one of those cymbals over and over and over again with a big smile on their face. And I just wanted to choke them because it's a horrible, horrible, horrible sound. Paul's saying that we can be as right as rain for God with something that we're doing for God. But if we don't have love mingled with it, that's what we sound like to the world. That's horrible. I don't want to sound like that to the world. He goes on to say, if I understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge, but I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If we can win arguments but have not love, what do we have? Paul shows us here that sometimes it's okay to defend ourselves. It's okay to defend the gospel and the hope that lies within us. But I hope that you see here, I think it's obvious, this man has a heart of concern for these people he's writing to. He loves them. He's got a shepherding heart like we talked about the first week. This is what a shepherd looks like. Not what a tyrant looks like. Not what a mean person looks like. He cares. It's okay to defend who we are in Christ. It's okay to defend the gospel. It's okay to defend our story that speaks of how God brought us the gospel. Which brings us to number two. Our story matters. It means something. Paul is telling his story here. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that our story or testimony is more important than the gospel. I'm saying that the God of the gospel gave us our story. And it's a strong defense for the gospel. And by that, I mean what happened to me and what happened to you. Who I was, who I am, and how I got here is a strong defense for the gospel because I'm not the person I used to be. And people can chalk it up to all kinds of things, but the people that know me, know that it took a miracle. 
It's a strong way to testify of him and what he's done. And this is what Paul's doing here. He's giving a a defense through his story because his story testifies and justifies who he is and what he's about in Christ. If it didn't, he wouldn't use it. And your story matters too. Do you know it? When we first started the door, we went through a series of Friday nights at one time um, where uh, we kind of called it a boot camp thing. And we had uh, people coming together. People were getting saved. We had new Christians coming in. And what we wanted to do was we wanted people to uh, identify their testimony, their God-given story of how they came to the Lord, and know how to share that with other people. We were trying to teach people how to share their story because it's strong when you share a story. And we had this one dude in particular who was so cute um, that used to come. And uh, he was a brand-new believer. And this dude was giddy, like he was like a little kid in Christ, the joy that would pour out of him. And he went home, and he he wrote his testimony down. And there wasn't a place that dude didn't go where he didn't pull that thing out of his back pocket. Like whenever he would talk to anybody, grocery store, restaurant, gas station, dude pumping his gas, it didn't matter. As soon as he came face-to-face with someone, he would pull out his testimony and say, let me share this with you. And it was funny, and I know that it annoyed a lot of people. But it also shared the glory of God in Christ Jesus with a lot of people. There were some people that came to church because of that dude's craziness with his testimony. Do you guys know your testimony? It is the story of the gospel and how it wrecked your life. It is the story of God's glory. I would would encourage you to go home, pull out a pen and paper. Some of you don't know what that is. Go look it up. And just write down. Don't, don't get too crazy with it. Don't make it too long because no one's going to want to hear it. Right? You're not writing a, a tome. Okay? Something that's bite-sized. Something that you could, you could share in five minutes with somebody. And it's got three parts. Who you were. When you met Jesus. And what he's done to you since. Okay? last two parts should be a lot longer than the first part, all right? We want to focus on the hero of the story, but it matters. Our stories matter. I've had the opportunity, um, for whatever reason, to get to go to um, um, gymnasiums and youth events before in the past, even into prison, and share my story with people. And God saves people through the stories that he's given us. Because it is the gospel. And God doesn't do all things one way. And it's amazing to hear someone testify of who they used to be and what God did, how he came in and wrecked us and made us new. It's a great thing. So make sure you uh, you know your stories. Our stories matter. Number three, this one we're going to focus on the rest of the time. This is the one we're going to spend the bulk of our time on because it's, it's the obvious one. What this passage shows us is that nobody is too far gone for God. Nobody is too far gone for God. Do you believe that? Because a lot of you have people in your life right now that you love, but when you look at them, you go, there is no way this person's ever going to be any different than what they are right now. And I get it. Because people, there are people that are far gone. And a lot of us know them. But nobody is too far gone for God. 
This narrative shows us that. No matter how bad somebody is, no matter how messy they are, no matter how unlikely it may seem, no one's too far gone. No one is impossible for God to save. No one is safe from the saving grace of God. In fact, God oftentimes saves the most unlikely people. I mean, look around this room. Yes, I am bagging on you. Even if you don't know who the person is next to you, you know who you are. I'm pretty unlikely. The people that knew me knew that I was pretty unlikely. My family knew that I was pretty unlikely. That I would ever live my life for Christ rather than against Him. And I am. And it ain't because of me. He likes to save the most unlikely people a lot of times. I mean, a lot of us in this room today, if you, if you were to take life's yearbook and turn to the page that says most likely not to succeed, that's where our pictures would be. I know that's where mine would be. But you know what's cool? Is that's the page that God likes to open to and sign. Praise God for that. See, God doesn't do the things we do. He doesn't do things the way that we would do them. A lot of us have gotten in a lot of trouble as Christians because we're trying to know God based upon how we think and how we would do something and how we would answer a prayer and how we would fix a situation or how we would respond to something. And it's just, we can't do it. We can't, li listen to this. Isaiah 55. My thoughts, says God, are not your thoughts. What does that tell us? God does not think like us. That's rad. Yeah, thank goodness is correct. It goes on to say, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. Chew on that for a second. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God does not do things the way that we do. He does not think the way we do. I remember uh, in elementary school, recess bell would hit, I'd be on the kickball field. I was all about the, the kickball, right? And I stunk at it. Like I wasn't any good, but I loved playing kickball. And that bell would ring, and I would get out there, and everybody would line up against the backstops. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And there would be two captains, and they would pick teams. And those two guys would be the best-looking, smartest, most popular, most skillful at kickball dudes that existed in the school. And then there was the rest of us up against the fence, right? And when those guys started picking their team, who would they pick? The next best-skilled Right? And then it would go down the line. What God has done as a captain is He has stood up there and He started at the back. He's looking at the underdogs. And He's saying, I want you on my team. And I want you on my team. I'm not bagging on you. 
I'm giving you good news right now. I've been an underdog all my life. I've been someone who's tried to be good at things all my life to gain the approval of other people. I've tried to belong all my life somewhere, and I don't. I never have. The only place I've ever belonged and excelled is at being a sinner, just like you. And my reward is Christ. And so is yours. Boast in that. God is the God for underdogs, for underachievers, for those who are likely to not be successful in their life. And he says, I want you on my team. And he passes up the rest. First Corinthians tells us this, doesn't it? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. I'm not calling you a fool. He is. What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak. In the world, to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. In other words, God doesn't compile the dream team. He compiles the bad news bears on purpose, so that when they go out and win, everybody knows it's Him. He does it all so that the world may know it's by His power and not by ours. It's all for His glory. It's all for His praise. It's for His honor. It's to His credit, both from believers as well as from non-believers, both from the church as well as from the world. All to His glory. And I love this because, like I said, I've been an underdog all my life. You know how I know that nobody is too far gone for God? How I know that nobody is too unlikely of a candidate? Paul. We cannot look at a passage like this without unpacking this dude's rebellion and his conversion. And this is kind of fresh on my mind because in Acts, I got his conversion. That was the week that fell on me. And so this was all kind of fresh. When I saw this, I went, wow, you know. And some of you haven't heard. Some of you don't aren't familiar with who Paul was. And so we're going to keep this super brief, but I think you get a little bit of an idea in this text of what he had to say about himself, right? Look at what he says in in verse 13, you know? I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. This dude hated the people of God and the church of God. He hated it. He wasn't just indifferent. He wasn't just like, oh, you go believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. He had a vendetta against the church. He was public enemy number one against the church. He hated the gospel. He hated the followers of Jesus. So much so that the fear of him and what he was doing to the church cleared out Jerusalem. The church was all concentrated. Thousands of people meeting Jesus. And they're in Jerusalem. And he was the the hammer that came down and struck the city and sent the church out into the far reaches of the world. He's the reason why 
See, even when Paul was against God, he was still God's tool. Paul didn't just want to rid Jerusalem of Christians. He wanted to rid the world of Christians. So once he ran them all out of Jerusalem, he traveled. Right? He wasn't like, cool, I'm glad I have my city back. He's like, I don't want them going to wherever they're going next and infecting that place. I'm going to go get them. Like, the dude was crazy. He was a lunatic. He was a fanatic. He was a man on a mission. And as he's roaming the countryside, dragging Christians out of their homes and throwing them in jail, the most unlikely event occurs. Jesus pays him a visit. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This dude's riding with all arrogance and all confidence and all pride high atop his horse. And when Jesus comes in contact with him, he's in the dust. That's what having an encounter with God does. God meets him in his perfect time and he says, you know what, we're going to stop right here. All right? And Paul finds himself in the direct presence of the risen, glorified Savior. And the glory is too much. It's too much for Paul, and it knocks him off his butt, and it blinds him, right? I mean, you guys have all seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The glory of God will melt your face, right? This, this dude's just, he's blind, he's undone. He can't do anything. Bottom line, Paul was overwhelmed that day by something much bigger than him and much bigger than his plans, and he was forced to tap out. Jesus didn't appear to him and say, oh, come on, Paul, won't you choose me? Won't you give your heart to me? This dude tapped out. He had no choice. Think about this. God could have chosen or picked anybody on earth to be his apostle to the Gentiles, but he determined to pick Paul. He determined on purpose to pick the worst guy against him. The baddest of the bad. He could have picked any number of better candidates at the time living on earth to be his earthly representative and personal instrument for the gospel, but he picked Paul the Christian killer. God picked the greatest enemy the church has ever seen and said, you're playing on my team now. The most unlikely person alive. You see, it's not because God needed Paul. It's because God wanted Paul. And I would love for you guys to um, to drink that in for yourselves today. The reason you know Christ, if you know Him today, is not because you're just one of those ones that chose Him. It could have been anybody, and now you're going to be one of the ones that populates heaven. No. God knew your name before you were born. He fashioned you in a way that you would know Him and meet Him and be with Him throughout eternity. Because that's how much He loves those who are His. What does this reveal about the character of God and the heart and the power and the nature towards those who are saved and who are being saved? This is important. Because I think that a lot of us 
picture, we have this picture of God where he's sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping that people are going to choose him or pick him. And that's simply not a biblical description of how God is. Almost like we would go and sit at the the horse races and hope that our horse crosses the line first. Again, he doesn't think the way we do. And he doesn't do things the way we do. This is not the God that the Scriptures put forth. This is not the God that Paul had a close encounter with. Look at 15 and 16. Paul says, When he had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Who's the initiator in this whole thing? God is doing, Paul is passive. Paul is being captured. He's being pursued. He's being rescued by a very big God. That being the case, the glorious truth, guys, is that we worship a God who is in no way limited by that which he's created. We worship a very big God. God's will to save us is in no way limited by our will to be against him. We can take that from this text. And this is such good news to me. Because I'm a runner, man. I'm a Jonah. There wasn't this thing in me all my life that thought, I just want to be more like Jesus. I I was constantly running away from the church, running away from him. And he did not let me. The only reason I'm here and I'm standing before you is because God pursued me. And I'll bet if we broke your stories down, you'd find the same thing at the end of the day if you were honest. What this means is that there is no God-hater, there is no God-ignorer, there is no evildoer, there is no atheist, there is nobody who's stubborn enough that is safe from God's saving mercy and determination. That's awesome. If God decides that he wants someone on his team, he's going to pick them off the fence. There is no one too far gone or too unlikely for him. I praise God that he doesn't wait for me to give my heart to him, but that he gave me a new heart for him. I praise God for that. I praise God that when he decides to have an encounter with us, it's game over. It's unconditional surrender. I praise God that he chooses to violate our hatred for him so that we could know him. I praise God that I cannot bump my rebellious will up against his perfect will and come out ahead. I praise God that he wins every time. I praise God that he trespassed into my life so that I may be redeemed. I praise God that he's not a gentleman, like I often heard growing up in the church, that will never make me do anything that I don't want to do. I praise God that he is a jealous God that refuses to lose anything or anybody that belongs to him. That's a big God. That's the God we serve. That's the God we worship, and that's the God that saved us. 
Just ask Paul. He'll tell you the same thing. He was the most unlikely follower and promoter of the risen Jesus, but he became one of the greatest followers and promoters of Jesus. And God's the difference. This is the point in what he's saying. No one is too far gone for God. And God loves to save those people that everyone thinks are. Because when he does, people know it's him. He gets all the credit. It glorifies God. It glorifies God because it doesn't make any human sense. And that's the entire point. And this is ultimately what God is after in the salvation, in salvation, that comes through Jesus Christ, is his glory. That's what he's all about. He's about his glory in all of it. That's why he does everything that he does. These guys looking on thought it was humanly impossible when they heard that Paul had flipped allegiances, that he had switched teams. But when they knew it was true, what does it say they did? Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. It caused a response of God being magnified and glorified, which is where worship comes from. True worship. Your story matters. Your testimony matters. But it's because it makes God the hero of our salvation and not us. So make sure when you write your testimony and you think about it, that he's the hero. And this is what Paul's shining a spotlight on in his story here. His justification for who he is and what he preaches, he credits to God, not himself or any other men. Then I'm going to stop. Because I smell it. Smell that bread. God, thank you for how big you are and forgive us, Lord, for not acknowledging how big you are. It is so easy for us to fashion you in our minds in a way that makes sense to us. But you're not like us. You don't think like us. You don't do things like us. You are you are so quantum beyond us in every holy and good and perfect way. And we praise you for who you are and what you've done. We praise you that of, out of everything you've made, you pay personal attention to us. Not only that, you made appointments with us before we even existed. We thank you so much for the gospel that is not of man, but that is yours. That man broke that which you made and you fixed it at your son's expense. I pray that everyone in this room would know that and have that. To your glory. Amen.